Hello again and welcome back. We are in the book of Judges, the story, chapter 8. That's what we're going to be discussing. Sorry, I'm a little late this week. I've had a little bit of a voice strain, so I was giving my voice a little bit of rest. But hey, we're back. Uh, great, great book, right? The book of Judges. I remember the first time I read it, I remember thinking, whoa, what am I reading? When you think about the scripture, this is not the kind of stuff that you think about. I mean, come on, I never thought that I'd pick up God's word and read about somebody taking a tent peg and driving it through somebody's temple or another individual tying foxtails together and putting a torch in the middle of it so that it would light everybody's farmland on fire and Ehud the left-handed stabbing somebody in such a way that their entrails come out. I mean, ugh. Man, but as a college student, when I first read it, I'll be honest, I thought it was pretty cool. And then I read some of the other Old Testament books, and I wasn't nearly as excited, (laughs) just being honest. Uh, But it's true, though. There's some interesting stuff here in the book of Judges. And so uh, we're going to see what's happening, especially when we look at the context, right? That's always important. Uh, Last week, we discussed how Joshua brought the Israelites into the land. Everything was uh, going well. The land was dispersed and everything was going well. Yes, as long as the people were following God, as they followed God, listened to him, kept the commandments, everything was fine. As soon as that started to change, well, then things weren't going so fine. So it would be fine as long as they did what God told them to do. But as you can imagine, they didn't do what God told them to do. In fact, you get right here to Judges chapter 1, and you see how things start to slide. It starts off well with Judah, uh, the clan of Judah, going and eliminating everybody exactly as they were supposed to do, right? But then you get to these other areas here where places like Ephraim, which is another tribe of Israel, they didn't drive out the inhabitants, or Manasseh didn't drive out the inhabitants, or Zebulun and Asher, they didn't drive out the inhabitants. So you have right there... A third of the people of Israel didn't do what God asked them to do. Now, it's not that God was just wanting to be harsh and thus really wanted everybody to die that was in the land, but he did it for a reason. Uh, Originally, at the end of Deuteronomy, he says, look, if there's nations that you take over or people that come from afar that want to be a part of Israel, fine, you can do that. But When you go into the land and you are driving people out of the land, you have to drive them out. You cannot retain them, keep them in the land in any way, even if it's just as servants or slaves. That's not how this is going to work because you have to remember, these people are being kicked out of the land because of the detestable things they were doing. The way that they were uh, going after other gods and their sacrificial system that was in place, they were doing some terrible, disgusting things and God did not want the people of Israel, to leave him and chase after these idols. He knew what Israel was prone to do. So when they got into the land, he said, get rid of everybody. Otherwise, they are going to corrupt you and you're going to be led to do things that you know is incorrect. So as soon as you get in, kick everybody out. But immediately in Judges 1, Manasseh doesn't, Ephraim doesn't, Zebulun doesn't, Asher doesn't. And you can kind of start to picture what's going to happen here, where this is going, and why the judges came about. When you think about judges, you probably think about people in long black robes who are trying court cases. 
That's not what the idea of the judges uh, are for. Uh, the judges are the people that will judge Israel or they will restore the balance and the righteousness of Israel after God puts them in a time of oppression. And it's well-deserved. So basically, this is the cycle of the judges. God will deliver Israel, right? Gives them the land. Then the people will chase after the false gods. They'll forget about God. Then, because of that, another nation will come in and oppress Israel. Then, after that's all said and done, they'll cry out to God, and God will send a judge out of mercy, and he will win the day, so to speak, so that the oppression no longer exists. This cycle is going to go on, go on over and over again. You have Caleb's brother who's going to be a judge. You'll have Deborah who's going to be a judge, and Ehud, and Samson, and Gideon, uh, just to name a few, right? So God raises up these judges who go after a particular group of people who are oppressing Israel. Uh, for Gideon, the one that we're going to talk about today, it's going to be uh, the Midianites. For Samson, it's going to be the Philistines. And you can kind of see how each group is kind of represented here, where God will save the people through these judges, now, one thing that we do find is that these judges, when you look at them, they're not people that you would necessarily expect to be leaders in the land. Uh, these aren't your typical guys who are showing great leadership skills. They're not necessarily popular individuals. They're, they're a little eccentric, so to speak, or, or at least people that you wouldn't expect, right? For uh, Deborah, she's a female. Now, are there anything wrong with female leaders? No, I'm not saying that at all. But typically speaking, when you look at the scriptures, a female isn't the one that God is using, especially in this patriarchal society in the Old Testament. You have Ehud as a left-hander. Left-handed individuals weren't people that were uplifted in society. You have Gideon, who's kind of a nobody. He's not from a, a big tribe or a well-known family background, nothing like that. Samson, well, he's not the brightest guy. I'm not one to talk bad about people, but he's really not the most intelligent individuals. So when you look at all these people, God uses all of these individuals for his purpose to deliver Israel. It's quite astounding the way that it happens. Now, as I said, I really wish I could come and, and talk about every single judge because there really are some interesting stories, uh, some fascinating things that, that you can learn from them. Uh, but for the sake of the time today, we are just going to focus on Gideon because truthfully, I think he's probably the one that maybe we can relate to the most. Now, Gideon, he's basically your average individual. And I'm not trying to put anybody down who's listening right now, uh, but uh, I'll use myself as an example. If you were to walk around uh, the Cape Girardeau area and walk up to, say, somebody in Walmart, just pick somebody at random and say, hey, do you know Jacob May? They would more than likely say, well, no. Who is that? Right? They, they wouldn't know who I am. Right? Is that kind of an individual when you're thinking about Gideon, the, the kind of person that really nobody really pays attention to? Yeah, he's from a lesser tribe, as he says, and not really the, the best of families. And he's even the youngest in the family. He's a nobody. In fact, while God is, is coming to him, what is he doing? He's uh, trying to harvest things they planted in the wine press area. I mean, this isn't really where you would normally uh, harvest your crops. But everything that is done right now in Israel is done in hiding 
because you have uh, the Midianites who are going about Israel trampling on people's crops or stealing them for themselves. I mean, they're much stronger right now than Israel is, even though Israel has so many people. Uh, Israel is not a threat. Uh, they don't see the hand of God upon them. In fact, Gideon himself says that. He says, God, why is it that we haven't seen you like our ancestors did when they brought you out of Egypt? We heard about these wonderful things, but we haven't witnessed it ourselves. Of course, we have the rest of the book of Judges that helps us with that. They're not following God. Therefore, God's hand has not been upon them the way that it used to be. But as God comes back to Gideon, it's kind of his way of saying, look, I am here, and I'm here to deliver Israel through you, O mighty warrior. Now, I get a kick out of that. This isn't a mighty warrior. This is Gideon. This is just your average individual. But isn't that how God works, right? God doesn't necessarily pick the strongest, the mightiest, the one that's the most intelligent, because if he was to do that, then the man would get all of the credit. But God finds those who aren't necessarily the ones that stand out the most so that he's the one that could be glorified. And why not? Our God is one that should be glorified. Our God is one who is good. And this text reminds us of that. Now, one thing I do like about Gideon, not just that he's a nobody like me, but he kind of acts like me. And my guess is he kind of acts like you too where God tells Gideon to go to his father's house and really he's, uh, go publicly and take down the, um, the false gods and resurrect a, an altar uh, to the living God. And so how does he do this? He doesn't do it during the day or when everybody can see him. He, he does it at night because he's afraid. In fact, as this happens, the people uh, kind of try to figure out who did this, and they want to kill Gideon as a result. And God, and, and Gideon's father kind of stands up for him and says, look, if Baal, which is a bad god, right? He's a false god that everybody wants to worship. If Baal is so strong, why do you have to worry about killing my son? Can't he deal with my son himself? Of course, the people leave him alone, and the reality is Baal isn't an actual god, and so there's nothing he can do to Gideon, plus the fact that Gideon is under the protection of God. And if God, the true living God, is protecting Gideon, then who can harm? Who could prosper over the living God? No one can. So this is going to build some confidence for Gideon, but not quite, right? And I love that because I have a way of having all these great things from God, yet I still doubt and I still worry when things get really heated. I still wonder, God, are you really going to be there, right? And this is true for Gideon. He says it's time to go to war and Gideon says, you know what, God, I really appreciate the fact that you've called me, but how do I know that you're actually calling me? Can you give me a sign? (laughs) Right? Would it be easier if we just said signs all the time? Uh, For instance, there's some cloth here in front of me. How about you uh, make everything dry around the cloth and just the cloth will be filled with dew? If that happens tomorrow morning when I wake up, I know that you sent me. And that's exactly what happens. But that's still not quite enough for Gideon. As he comes back to God and says, you know what? I want to believe you. I'm sorry. It's my faith. But uh, reverse it. Make the whole ground filled with dew. But the actual cloth, let's go ahead and keep that dry. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And then there's one more time down the road where Gideon doesn't ask for reassurance of faith, but God gives it to him through two other individuals that are talking uh, about how God is going to deliver them. And Gideon just overhears this and he takes this as a great reassurance of faith, right? This is what God is willing to do for Gideon. Even though his faith is so weak, he still gives him this. So they get to the point where this battle is going to take place. 
And what does God say? You know what, Gideon, you have too many people. I mean, come on, what, what kind of army does this? We have too many people. We need to uh, send some other individuals home so that way the odds are even more stacked against us. Well, God's the one that's going to get all the glory. Find the people that are afraid. Send them home. So he does it. God says, no, still not enough. In fact, give people something to drink. The ones that lap like dogs, they can stay. The ones that take their hand and bring it to their mouth, send them home. And so he's left with about 300 individuals and against an army. I mean, this doesn't make sense. But why would it? See, if it made sense, if it was a strong army, if it was a mighty army, the mighty army would get the credit. Gideon would get the credit. At the end of the day, we have to look at this and say, God had to have been involved. And that's what God wants Israel to say. God was the one who was orchestrating this whole thing. Just as God was the one that brought them out of Egypt, God is the one that's going to serve and save and protect them because he's just a good and gracious God. This is who he is, and they should trust in him and him alone. And that's what he does, right? This crazy plan, kind of like the walls falling down at Jericho. God says, just scream and holler and throw your pottery down at the right time. Everything's going to break and send the enemy in chaos. (sighs) Israel can't claim this victory. The only way they can claim it is if they claim it in the name of God. God is the one that is orchestrating this whole event. It's amazing that God can use somebody like Gideon to do great things and be glorified. How about you? Can God use the likes of you? Sometimes it feels hard, doesn't it? I don't know. I'm, I'm not a great preacher like Aaron, so I, I shouldn't talk about godly things. Or I'm not a great evangelist like Paul. Or I'm not a great warrior like Gideon, who wasn't really a warrior. But truth be told, the season of Lent, really this is a time for us to reflect. It's a time for us to repent. Who are we? Why is it that we have to repent? Well, that really makes it hard for us to think that God could use somebody like us, right? I mean, think about some of the things that we've thought, some of the things we've done. Oh, the horrendous past that we've had. I mean, God, surely you can find somebody else to call and your kingdom would be better off, right? Not using somebody like me. Maybe you're using someone that can actually speak a little better. Someone who can format their words a little better. Someone who has the ability to be a good leader and influence other individuals. God, that's not me. And isn't that funny how we can claim something that's not me, but in reality, isn't this supposed to be about God? Isn't God the one who's in charge of this whole thing? If someone is going to be glorified, don't worry. It's not going to be you. It's God. See, that's what this time of repentance tells us is that there's no reason for us to be glorified because we are by nature sinful and unclean. What we find in reading the story about the judges and we think about this Lenten season is that, yes, we are the ones that are in need of a judge. But don't worry. We don't have to fear the judgment, for the judgment came, and like the book of Judges, in a very unusual way. Not to the kind of individual that you would expect, not a mighty warrior, but he came in the form of Jesus, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth, and even being called the son of the carpenter, well, people questioned the legitimacy, didn't they? Questionable background, but God really calls somebody like this. 
See, God could have called a strong man. I talked about that. But then the strong man would get the credit. God could have sent someone who's intelligent, but the intelligent man would have gotten the credit. God could have called anybody. But he didn't. For God was going to get the credit on this one. He came in the flesh, humbly, so he could take your sins and my sins. He would come and defeat sin. How? Not by wielding a mighty sword, but by wielding a cross. He doesn't come with a shield in hand, but he welcomes all of the blows that come his direction. This is the righteousness of God. This is how it would come. And it would come by Jesus taking the wrath of God that we deserve, but by placing it on his own son and then defeating sin, defeating death and raising raising him to life and giving us his victory. I mean, this is an unfair judgment, but this is the righteousness that God has given to us out of his sheer love for you and for me. And looking at it like that, only God could get the credit, right? We don't deserve it, but he does. And as a result, come to think of it, isn't that why we are the perfect people to be used by God today? Nope. We may not be Aaron, but we have a story to proclaim. No, we may not be great evangelists like Paul, but we all have a testimony that needs to be shared that talks about how we have been delivered, how we have been set free, not by us, but by Jesus. We can proclaim our past and where we've been, but where Jesus has brought us, who cares if it's in an eloquent manner or not? God's the one that's going to change the hearts and use us anyway. This is his show. No, we might not be a great and mighty judge, but we have the opportunities to speak up for the truth. No, we might not be the greatest and mightiest counselor, but you know what? We can listen to those who are hurting. We might not always have the best actions and the right words, but we can wrap our arms around the person that really needs us while they are mourning. See, a lot of times in our Christian life, we think about the things that we can't do. But let's remember, this isn't about us. This is about God. And the last time I checked, God is able to do things that we once thought were impossible. He's the one that is running the show. He's the one that's in charge. He is the one that will be glorified. Indeed, his name is worthy to be praised. So I pray for you that as you are continuing to listen to the Lord, do what he's called you to do, you remember the grace, the grace by which you have been saved that in that grace, you are able to share the good news of Jesus. After all, he saved you that he might be glorified. Amen.